Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. Roger Abel in studio with Elias. Eli, I already asked you how your baby's doing, so we don't have to cover that. We kind of know what's going on there. But I think over the weekend, my parents, they're getting ready to retire, and they asked me. Uh, they saw that they could that Social Security is going to have one of the biggest increases of all time, 8.7%. Yeah, inflation's high, right? So that cost of living um, adjustment they make is tied to inflation. So I think that's a good thing for people's Social Security benefits. At least at least your income on a monthly basis from that's going to be pretty close to keeping up with inflation. So I don't know if that makes anyone feel any better, but I guess that's kind of the on the bright side. You know, I, th- I think um, what's, what's interesting about that is you know, we've done financial planning for a really long time. And usually in that, in that software, we've even reduced the ex for years. We've reduced the expected inflation rate down to around 1% because inflation for the better part of the last 10 years has been almost non-existent. And part of the reason we reduced that number was all of the increase they were seeing in their social security is really offset by the increase in Medicare premium. So it really wasn't moving the needle for anybody from a discretionary spending standpoint. But I mentioned to you before we came into this show because CPI came in at 8.2 in September, social security beneficiaries are going to get an 8.7% raise. And I said, you know what we need to do? We need to go back and review the financial plans that we've done for people because If we think about it in 2020, there was a 1.3% increase in Social Security. 2021 was 5.9, and this year was 8.3. And it got me thinking, this is why it's so critically important that people have a very dynamic retirement or planning tool versus static. And static means you just never make a change. Well, our Social Security estimation is already 14% less than it should be. That actually can be a, be and make a meaningful difference for people. But the other thing that probably has changed because we have inflation, the person three years ago that told us that they were going to spend 5000 a month, it might be 6500 now. And we've inflated in the software. We, we have inflation in there, but it's around 3%. It's not 8 Yeah, and we haven't, like you said, we haven't inflated the... Social Security benefits, which what for the last 30, 40 years, or certainly the last 10 to 15 years hasn't been that big a deal because it it's the raise is never really significant. Um, and you have to go. I was really shocked by the biggest annual increase was 11.2%. And that was in 1981. And now it's 2022. And we get the second biggest raise and it's 8.7%. So it's typically... Typically, uh, these amounts aren't going up by anything that's really that relevant for people. But yeah, certainly the last two years, I'm sure it's been very helpful, especially if you're retired or just not working anymore and you're living on Social Security and some fixed income sources. This is a big deal for people. Well, if you have a $3,000 a month Social Security check, it just went to $3,240, almost $3,250. Like $250, that's a big difference for... I mean, that pays a cell phone bill. I mean, in yeah, it doesn't seem like a lot, but that is a lot for a lot of people. Um, so I think that's really good that they're trying to, you know, make sure people are keeping up the cost of living through Social Security, especially considering for most people, 
it's their largest guaranteed check. You know, 20 years ago, you had a pension that was probably equal to or more than your social security. Today, with the switch from defined benefit plans to defined contribution plans and employers, most people, their only guaranteed check is that social security check. All the other retirement income they have is gonna be derived from what they saved in a company 401k or a Roth IRA or any other savings and planning that they did individually. And it, it's a part of everyone's plan. I mean, everyone that worked has some sort of social security benefit. So it's going to impact, um, it's going to impact everyone. And it's part of your total, total financial picture. And it is nice as far as a planning perspective, because that's income you can always count on. And in our business, when we're trying to determine income and how much people can spend and all that, having a social security, which is always there and always paid, it's a really critical component of the planning we're helping clients do. Well, and it makes me think about, you know, everybody's excited about getting an increase. Everybody likes to hear, hey, I'm getting a pay raise. But how many people, Elias, don't try to maximize their social security benefit? They just say, hey, I'm 62, I'm going to take it. Or my friend said I should take this at 64. I mean, so they love to get the increase, but they're not really concerned about maximizing this benefit. And truth be told, it's almost impossible to perfectly maximize your benefit. And the reason is we just don't know what somebody's life expectancy is. You know, if you think about trying to play the game with Social Security and get the maximum amount out, if I knew every single individual's exact life expectancy, it would be a very, very, very easy decision. It would be if we had a crystal ball and we would actually know it would be. And I think when you look at it from a financial planning perspective and goals-based planning like we do, you're going to be able to at least make some of those decisions with a little more behind it than... Um, you know, a lot of the common things we hear where, well, my neighbor did it at this time and someone I work with said I should do it this way because that's the way they did it. Or I've even heard of people implementing a strategy that they were given by their CPA or something that um, I could agree with. I maybe don't agree with. I think ultimately the best way to do it is through a goals-based plan where you say, how does this impact my total picture? And then you start to make those decisions there and you do have to consider health, right? I mean, no one knows, no one knows your, the, your date of expiration, right? But if you think about maybe some of your family history, have you had any major health events? There's a few basic things you can at least kind of wrap your mind around to help guide you and get you, get you in the right direction on a really good decision there. When it comes to looking at health, there's one way that I really like to do it with individuals. And I like to take this lens as if I was an actuary at an insurance company. And I just ask the individual, if I was the underwriter, the actuary at or whatever large insurance companies out there, and you were going to apply for life insurance today, would you get a standard rate? Would you get a substandard rate? Or would you get an, like a preferred rate? Like where would you fall on that spectrum? And if you tell me you're getting a preferred rate, well, we should plan on longevity in your situation because insurance underwriters underwrite insurance based upon longevity. And we don't know, but if we play the statistical numbers, it starts to guide the decision-making when it comes to health. 
So if somebody has diabetes, stroke, cancer, any major health event at 60 years old, maybe that may make them lean towards taking that benefit at an earlier age, assuming that it still works in their financial plan. The Another thing I think goes into it, and if more people really thought about how those benefits work and the increases that you get, because as, as investors get older, and especially coming on retirement, they're just inherently become more conservative, whether they should be or not, just through things they read, maybe just how investing makes them feel they want to become more conservative. So then understanding the increase you get from delaying from 62 to full retirement age, and then also understanding the annual increase you get when you delay from full retirement age to age 70. Those are some of the things you need to consider because those increases, like from full retirement age to age 70, it goes up 8% a year. Well, if you think about it from the in terms of an investment, if that were an investment product and we could guarantee an 8% annual increase, how much, how much money would people invest? How many people would want something like that? So that, and if you're a more conservative investor, because sometimes I hear people say, well, I don't want to take out, I don't want to take money from my retirement accounts. I just want to take social security, but it might actually fit your risk tolerance better to have a distribution strategy earlier to bridge the gap until you can get the most out of your benefits. I, I agree with that to an extent, but some of it's timing. So if someone told me today that, and we ran this plan at work both ways, well, two things are happening with our economy. One, the stock market's down 26% and bond rates are up. You know, we've had that discussion for the last 15 years because you're getting zero on cash. You're getting nothing on a from a bond yield equivalent. Well, I remember the days where you can get a six or a seven percent tax-free University of Iowa bond. So all of a sudden, you may be able to find an equivalent investment product that may make people take that at sixty-two, because it allows them to to one grow their investments, but number two, not have to take any money from their investment that's down twenty-six percent. So and that's another very been, valid point. It's been We're a very easy. Yeah. And I think what I'm getting at is the social security decision. It's not that cut and dry because we just got on basically opposite sides of the argument there. And I haven't been on the argument of, Hey, maybe there is an equivalent investment product or maybe you should take it early, but we might be getting there. I don't know. So it, it makes me think about kind of the three biggest mistakes that, we see people make, and it's really because they're not, well, number one, they're not interested. Number two, claiming social security is not as easy as they make it sound. And number three, there's just a lot of different ways to do it. But the number one mistake, in my opinion, is not knowing the your full retirement age. And it changes. It's been changed. It's been put pushed back. But those born after 1960 or later, their full retirement age is 67. That's when you actually qualify for a non-reduced benefit. Anything you take, if you're born after 1960, if you take your benefit 62, 63, 64, 65, you're actually taking a reduced benefit. The other thing that the full retirement age does, it removes the income limits on how much money you can make in retirement. So if you're 65 and you're still fully employed and you decide to take social security, you're going to lose those benefits because you're over the, you're likely 
over the income limit, which this year's around $19,000. So that's why you need to know in your full retirement ages so you don't inadvertently claim Social Security and then lose benefits because you're over an income limit. Right, and when you're... Yeah, that that's something I don't... I always kind of overlook too, but when you get... When you're full retirement age, you can claim and then keep working and it doesn't reduce your benefit. So that's another, you know, that's another important factor. And I mean, you were just talking about, I just realized how much that's probably something I should consider even more when, when helping people. Well, and here's another thing Elias, the people don't consider. They retire at 62, they take their social security, but then they decide to go back to work. Yeah. So and you're now they're reduced benefits going to be on the table. Right. They're paid, so they took that benefit because their neighbor said they had to, or they should. Or, you know, I was teaching a class at Mercy here a couple of weeks ago and the guy goes, well, what if I took my benefit and then I took that benefit and invested it? Okay, well, now we got to watch income limits who decide to work. But number two, human nature, it's like buying term and investing the difference. No one invests the difference. You're going to take your social security, invest the difference. No, you're not. Probably going to up your lifestyle. I, I hear all these different reasons why you should take it. You know the reason you should take Social Security and when you should take it? Based upon the results of your financial plan. What gives you the highest probability of having a successful, longevity-driven life? You know, if you pass away at 81 and you planned on living to 93 and you didn't maximize your Social Security benefit... You're not going to come back here and say, man, I wish I would have waited. And that should at least be the first step, right? The first step should be, how does this impact my total picture? If it, if the result of that is it doesn't matter because your plan is high, there has a high probability of success either way, then maybe you can, you know, then maybe you can go down these other paths of, well, maybe I should take it and invest it. And maybe I should, maybe I should do this or consider that. But I think step one is, Let's determine what's going to help you achieve your goals uh, with the highest probability of success. I think that's kind of the first question that needs to get answered. And another reason that people need to know what their full retirement age is, is, you know, we used to get those statements in the mail and on the front, it shows your benefit. It shows the benefit. So some people, only 13% of adults can actually tell you what the full retirement age is for them. So just, just imagine 13% of the people know they get a statement in the mail that says, Oh, your benefit is 2000. Your estimated benefit is $2,000. Do you think that they think that that means that's what it is today? Absolutely. Yeah. There I can see that. There's a large percent of the population that thinks that's what their benefit's going to be at 62. And then they go claim it and it's reduced it's, by what I think it's like a third. So now yeah. it's 1500 They Wait a minute, it said 2000 because they didn't flip the page over and read it. And that kind of leads into the second biggest mistake people make, and it's that they're not checking their estimated benefits. And full disclosure, and we've talked about this in multiple shows before, I don't ever check my benefit. I've never checked mine. And, and part of it is, I think, in this, you know, maybe this is just conspiracy-based, I don't know. But I think part of this is, they don't send statements anymore. I mean, if they do, I think it's like every five years. You have to go online and check it, so I don't really care. But I think part of it is they want you and myself and everybody under age 40 to not know what their benefit is. So if you have a reduced benefit, you won't even know. 
If you don't know what your benefit is, how would you know if it got reduced? You wouldn't. I would have no idea. I'd have no idea either. And and, and I should probably do a better job of checking, but I, I think part of it is they don't really want us to know what the benefit is. Like if you're going to look at, go check it out, you're going to have to work to find it. You are and that actually, and that's maybe that could potentially be a value add that we offer. Cause part of our process of working someone through a plan is here's where you access your statements. We can't do it for people. Right. So we can just educate them on here's the website. It's SSA.gov. You go on there, find your statements, but it's a critical component of the data that we need. So we do have a process of walking people through that and that could very well be the first time for a lot of people we work with not the first time they've seen a statement because they used to mail out annually i believe is that correct I mean, it used to be annual now i think it's every five years that they even do it right but and now it's more common where people say yeah i haven't checked that for a long time well I, it's a good time to check it people never bring their statements in anymore when we do a plan they just give us the printout from ssa.gov and yep that's what they bring to us and then the third thing is uh, the third kind of mistake that we see a lot is not taking advantage of all the benefits you're entitled to. Uh, and this is important in planning. And if you're planning Social Security by yourself, um, you may not even know you're eligible for some of this stuff. And this is the most common one people don't know. We have a husband and wife dynamic. And let's say wife worked, husband stayed home, never went to work or didn't work a significant amount. Wife had a high paying job. The spouse is eligible for 50% of the other spouse's benefit. So you could technically have one spouse who has a $3,000 month social security check, another spouse who's never worked a day, and that spouse is eligible for $1,500 a month of that benefit. Well, and even if they did work, if their own benefit is less than 50% of the spouses, they can take that higher amount. Yeah, they, they get the higher amount. Right. So that and that could be I mean, even if it's only if it's five hundred bucks, what if it's even if it's only two hundred dollars a month difference, that's still more money and still more lifestyle that you can have. And it goes back to claiming too, because let's say that's the dynamic where there's one large check. It may make sense to wait for that person who has the large check till age seventy to get the maximum benefit. Because when one spouse passes away, one check goes away. So you might want the bigger check. So that's why I said this isn't really complicated. It's not complicated, but it is because there's so many ways to claim this. Um, beneficiaries are also eligible for divorce benefits. So if you were divorced um, and you're not currently married and your previous marriage lasted 10 years, you're basically eligible for the same benefits as if you had spousal benefits. So you'd be eligible for uh, a percentage of that check. And then there's survivor benefits. If you had a loved one passed away there, you're eligible for benefits there. If anybody needs help by figuring out what this is, come into our office, go to our website, btwellshow.com. You can click, get a plan, get started. We can kind of help you sift through some of this because I don't remember the article I read, but I want to say there's like 400 different ways to actually claim social security. I'm sure. Yeah. If you add up all the different, the different ways, it's probably, yeah, it's probably a lot. I have no idea. And once you do it, you don't get it three years later say, Oh yeah, I want to do over. It's a one and done deal. I do know that. Um, and so Elias, one of the people that I, that I feel almost get trapped in this are self-employed people and small business owners. And 
self-employed people, if you, if you meet with them, many of them, their goal is to minimize their tax situation. Like, you know, they're between what they're earning and their deductions, they're trying to minimize their tax situation. And at the same time, they end up minimizing their social security benefit. Part of that reason is the small business owner or self-employed person basically pays double FICA and social security tax. You know, if, if you're employed by an employer, your employer pays, you know, half and you pay half. Well, when you're self-employed or own a business, you pay double. So what I see a lot is that they end up minimizing business owners end up minimizing their social security benefit because they're trying to minimize the total tax that they pay. And that kind of becomes a dangerous combination if people don't get to like the scale of a large business. If you take an average business owner makes 90,000 and they're trying to minimize their social security benefit, they're minimizing their largest guaranteed check because they're trying to not pay into the system. And we get the check a lot or the, the question a lot, how much salary or how much you know income should I show so that I can, you know, or how much should I have so I have some kind of a social security check? You know, go look at a lot of farmers. The social security checks are minimal because they're get, utilizing depreciation and a lot of other tax uh, measures that are completely legal, but it's actually kind of cutting out their guaranteed check later in life. It, it is, and it's maybe not as, I, I think maybe just one of the, the first simple ideas someone might think of is, well, I could increase my salary. And at that point, yeah, you are going to pay to pay more in. Um, you're going to pay a lot more taxes doing that. But then there's also, you know, business owners have access to retirement plans. They can open up uh, SEP IRAs, uh, solo 401ks for themselves. And it depends on the structure of the business, right? Depending on what plan you're going to use. But I think if can you minimize your taxes and still get some social security and potentially save some money? I think the important thing is you're going to utilize the tools available to set yourself up where one day you can have an income without owning your business um, anymore. So some of it might be ultimately you might have to pay yourself some more salary. You know, that's, it, these are things that start to get a lot more complicated and everyone, especially business owners do not like taxes but to me, it's almost kind of one of the harsh, not a harsh reality, a reality is if you're making money, you're going to pay taxes. Well, and I think one thing that people don't realize, because most people aren't, aren't subject to this, but um, the Social Security has a maximum salary each year that's actually subject to payroll tax. And the maximum salary right now um, or I'll just use 2023 is going to be $160,000 to $160,200. So, so what that really means, if you paid yourself 300,000 as a business owner, only 160 of that's subject to the FICA and social security tax above and beyond that. It's not. Um, so this is where, if you're a business owner, it may make us make sense to do some planning with the CPA to say, Hey, how do I maximize my tax situation versus just kind of winging this at the same time, you know, getting a social security benefit, if that's what you're trying to get, uh, because it, it can make a big difference and kind of leads to a bigger issue in general that I see with business owners. Business owners are very focused on their business and 
their business provides them their income, provides them their livelihood. The problem is most business owners overestimate what their business is actually worth. And then they use that as a reason to not save for retirement. If you go pull a lot of business owners out there, most small business owners aren't saving a whole lot for retirement. And, and I know that you, you get to a point where, yeah, you have a business that has $3 million in net revenue. Yeah. Those guys are saving for retirement because they, they have to, they're getting tax benefits. But if you go look at the average business owner, go look at someone driving Uber full time, making 60,000 bucks a year. I'm almost going to guarantee you they're not saving anything for retirement. And there's other, I, I think something I've heard over the years, um, business owners that will say, well, my business, I'm going to build this business up and this is my retirement. And that's, a t I'm totally okay with that mentality. I, you know, if you're going to own a business, you should be all in on that, right. And the growth of it and being successful at doing that, that doesn't mean you need to save every penny that you make. But there is value in doing and in investing and in doing some retirement planning, uh, whether it's with your CPA in conjunction with your financial advisor. There absolutely is is value there. And even if even, let's say you're starting a small business and then you just open a Roth IRA, like what, what would the negatives over the long term be of contributing a little bit of money to even just an IRA account over the long term? How would that be? What? Why would that be negative for somebody? It's not. And I'll, I'll be honest. I think a business owner shouldn't plan on their business being worth anything when they retire. They should operate just like every single person going to work because while they're working, they're employed. And if you were employed somewhere else, you'd have a workplace retirement benefit plan. So they should be saving 15% of their paycheck just like everybody else. Because guess what? People get sick, they get hurt, they get injured. The business landscape changes. What are you going to do if you didn't save anything? Like, I believe business ownership plan just like everybody else. Being a business owner is not an excuse to not save for retirement. And for a lot of business owners, it is. Well, yeah, I'm putting all my money into the business. Well, maybe you should pay yourself a little bit first. You know, I know that's how I live. I live as if I'm going to and save as if I'm going to retire at a specific age. Will I? Probably not. But why wouldn't I plan for that? What if I get sick and now I can't work? But my whole idea is, well, I don't have to save for retirement because, you know, I can work forever. Who can work forever? Yeah, that that's not reality. It's, people can't work forever. I there's, know there's people that want to, but you can't. And I get it. There may be value to the business that we've created. But what is it in 25 or 30 years? The answer is we don't know. We don't even know if how we do business today will be how we do it in 30 years. In fact, I'm going to guess it's not. It's going to be totally different. Think about 30 years ago in our industry. 30 years ago, everybody was a stockbroker. We picked individual stocks. Today, almost nobody pitches individual stocks to their clients. No, now it's a it's uh it's a lot more financial planning. It's all planning based. Yeah, it's all goals based. It's all outcome based, which is kind of where the societies went in general. Even think about the medical field. It's all what's the best outcome. How do we get the best outcome? Well, that's what we're doing. How do we get the best outcome through planning? So I, I think that's one thing that business owners should really, you know, treat 
differently than they do. And I know many that just, Hey, I'm, my business is my retirement. I hope it is, but I, I plan as if it's not. And that'll be the, that'll be the cherry on top of the Sunday. If I do a good job saving. I like that. The cherry on top of the Sunday. That sounds nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're a big Dave Ramsey guy, Elias. Yeah. Did you happen to see this? Uh, he had a, um, YouTube, but somebody called in and they wanted to know about rent to own homes and what he thought about that. What are your takes on that? I know you follow him a lot. I'll, I'll take your, your input here. Well, I, I think kind of the point of this blog that was written or this YouTube was just to understand exactly what you're getting into. Um, because when you're renting to own, there's a few things to consider. You're going to pay higher rent and a portion of that rent is going to buy you equity in the home. But if you're, here's kind of a thing you need to consider. If you're renting to own because your bank is not willing to finance a mortgage for you, well, you either need to save enough cash to be able to buy that house at the end of this contract or terms, whatever has been negotiated, or figure out a way where you will be able to get a mortgage and have the cash to pay for it because you could end up in a situation where you paid more rent than necessary to buy equity into a house. And now your option to buy it is expiring because you can't finance that purchase. So I think in general, the way to buy a, the, the way to buy a home would be more traditional where you save, save a down payment, go through the banking system, get the financing and buy and just and buy a home when you're ready to do that. I mean, yeah. rent to own may work in very specific situations, but I don't think it's the best option for people. Cause if you're in a position where you can't get financing today and you'd have no idea how you're going to get into a position to get financing in five or 10 years, you might just pay extra rent for that time. And then now you don't own the house anyway. Well, and let, let's be honest, if you have to rent to own, that means you don't have 20% to put down. So you don't have yeah. a down payment. So I think the person who think about rent to own, no, you don't need to rent to own home ownership. It's great. Is it overrated? Maybe. I mean, there's something to be said about having and renting someplace that you don't have to fix the air conditioner and the heater and all the stuff and the siding and the roof when something bad happens. You know, I've, I've owned multiple properties and they're always more than what the payment is. So if you're renting to own, you probably, you can't afford it right now. Otherwise the bank would lend you money. You haven't saved a down payment. You can't afford it. Well, you definitely haven't estimated the annual maintenance cost. Most rent to home homes aren't new construction. They're probably 30, 40, 50, 60, 80 yeah, years you're old. Buying, you're buying an older property. You're buying a money yeah. pit is what it's going to be. So unless you can fix that stuff, the answer on rent to own is no. Well, all, the, all the cards are in favor of the person renting. Like if you can't yeah. put 20% down to get financed through a bank, I don't know what the percentage is, but in two years, you're, it's not going to be better. How are yeah, you going to finance? Well just rent the place. Just rent the place. And even if you, you know, like me, I own a, I own my home. Well, kind of, it's on a mortgage. The so, I mean, I'm basically, yeah, the bank owns You're my house. You're renting from the I, bank. Right, exactly. But that's a mentality, right? Like, I know I'm renting the house from the bank. The only way home ownership in the long term makes sense is if you're actually going to get to a point where you don't have that mortgage payment anymore. Your property taxes are never going away. Your maintenance costs are never going away. 
and not beyond the maintenance cost, you have to t address the problem, right? If your dishwasher breaks, you don't call your landlord and say, hey, this dishwasher's broken. You go to Home Can Depot. Can you fix it? <laughs> now you're spending your time shopping for dishwashers. So there's a lot to it where, you know, renting, renting is not that, to me, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that bad of an idea to just rent. It goes back to why do you want to own a home? And if somebody tells me because it's an investment, no, it's not. How many people do you know? And, and I'm at, this is a serious question. Alas, how many people do you know that have sold their primary residence for X amount of dollars and cashed out and went and bought something, bought another place for something less? I don't know anyone. Nobody. I don't, I don't even know any retired people that a lot of people say we're going to downsize in retirement, but right. Talk is cheap, right? A lot of people say that we don't ever see anyone actually do that. If no. they sell the house, they raise their family in and they go get, they might go to a condo or something like an HOA where there's less stuff to do as far as like, you know, grass and um, snow removal and all that. But Price-wise, they're still in the same price range as that house they sold. My in-laws sold their two-story house to go to a condo. They sold it for one number. They bought something a little bit less, but it wasn't this massive like step back that people think about when they say downsize. They downsized square footage. They actually went from a house that was 23 years old to brand new construction condo. Similar cost, half the size, but then they eliminated all the, hey, all the maintenance and stuff that could go wrong and they have a home warranty and a bunch of different stuff, but they didn't really downsize the cost. They downsized the square footage because it made more sense as a retiree to not be on three different floors. And so that's you, part of downsizing. It is smaller, but financial, that wasn't a financial downsize. Financially, it, it might be more. By the time they added the HOA and all those things, it might be more. But could like be. you said, if somebody tells you your home's an investment, it is not an investment unless you're going to sell it. And then you still need a place to live. Like the only way it's an investment is if it generates you a dividend interest or a long-term capital gain that you're going to use to retirement, retire or live on at some point in time. But just having a house, it's not an investment. Uh, with that said, Elias, appreciate you having the show again today. If anybody wants any help, you can go to btwellshow.com. I want to thank everybody for listening. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.